On the second Sunday of Advent, our epistle text comes from the book of 2 Peter. And so if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me uh, to this brief little letter from Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3, the reading this morning is verses 8 through the beginning of verse 15. As you turn there, if you're with us today and if you're able, I'd invite you to stand in honor of the Lord's word. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 8. Don't let it escape your notice, dear friends, that with the Lord a single day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a single day. The Lord isn't slow to keep his promise, as some think of slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to change their hearts and lives. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a dreadful noise. The elements will be consumed by fire and the earth and all the works done on it will be exposed. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? You must live holy and godly lives, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. Because of that day, the heavens will be destroyed by fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness is at home. Therefore, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found by him in peace, pure and faultless. Consider the patience of our Lord to be salvation. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So, you know, there are a lot of things that Deb and I still uh, kind of miss about California. Um, I know that that is heretical sometimes to say around here. But by the way, it's not a competition. Every place has their good things and challenges. And there are lots of good things about Idaho, and we would miss if we ever had to leave. But there are some things that, that I still really miss about California. Um, but one thing I do not miss is I do not miss living in the fear of earthquakes. Uh, the two largest earthquakes that that I have ever experienced um, happened while the first time we lived in California. Uh, we moved there. We'd been married a year. We moved there in 1991, um, sometime in the spring, late February, early March, so I could start third quarter and, and start uh, kind of going to school full time. But that spring, early summer, actually June the 28th, 1991, they had the Sierra Madre earthquake at 7.43 a.m. It was a 5.6 magnitude earthquake. Two people were killed, 100 people injured. About $40 million in damage happened. Now, if you know Pasadena, um, you know that the church is actually on Sierra Madre Boulevard, and we live not very far from Sierra Madre, where the quake was epicentered. I will never forget it. It was 7.43. I was just getting out of bed, and we lived on the second floor of a really bad apartment complex, uh, where sometimes it would shake if somebody rolled something out in the hallway. And so I thought, well, just somebody's rolling something. And it took me a minute to realize, oh, we're having an earthquake um, I hadn't learned yet that the best place to be in an earthquake is actually in bed. I should have jumped back in, uh, but instead I grabbed Debbie by the neck and, <laughs> and pulled her into the doorway. Um, but as we stood there, we watched, uh, we hadn't been married very long, we watched several of our new dishes that people had bought us um, as we got married uh, kind of dance and fall onto the floor, and there was just a lot of, of mess. Um, three years later, uh, January the 17th, 1994, there was another earthquake the Northridge earthquake at 4.30 in the morning. I wasn't up. 
But it was a 6.7 magnitude time this time. 57 people were killed and 8,700 people injured. And the damage was not 40 million this time, but 50 billion with a B. Now, when those two earthquakes happened, um, I learned that there's a kind of pattern that you go through in Southern California life, and that is this. For about two weeks, it is the top story on the news as they talk about all the damage and all those kinds of things, and there is a particular scientist from Caltech that they interview every night on the news. And that Caltech scientist then just scares you to death as she talks about how earthquakes function and that there are several fault lines in Southern California and that these two fault lines finally had enough stress where they gave way, but there is a bigger fault line, the San Andreas fault line that runs right through the heart of Los Angeles and that one is a big one. And all of these other little earthquakes are a sign that there's stress in those tectonic plates and it's always this conversation. At some time, we do not know when, but at some time, that fault line is going to give way, and the big one is going to come. And they would always ask them, do you know when it's going to happen? No, I don't. But these smaller quakes that are big enough to do very significant damage and scare you and make you want to move to Idaho, those are just precursors and warnings that the big one is going to come. And so then this is what happens. For several weeks, they talk about having emergency kits in your car and in your house. And so there's a big run on bottled water for about a month. Do you, have you experienced this? There's toilet paper runs. There are all of these. Everybody goes and gets those things and you make sure that you have all your, your earthquake stuff ready. And that lasts for about a month. And then the earth sort of start, stops shaking and everybody kind of gets back to normal. And we realize because of those other quakes that there was significant damage. And so geologists and civil engineers come and say, we probably should pass new laws about how buildings should be constructed and make sure that when that one comes, we're going to find out what buildings have been built in ways that can absorb those kinds of shocks, and we're going to find out what hasn't. And maybe if you want to keep your dishes, maybe you shouldn't put them on the top shelves. Maybe you should put them down a little ways. And maybe you should put latches on your cupboards to hold kind, those kinds of things in. And you have all those conversations. But then there is this delay. And the question becomes, how, how do we respond during delays? And this is really the question the text raises this morning. How will we respond to the delay as we wait for the day of the Lord. How will we respond to the delay as we wait for the day of the Lord? For clearly this letter is written because there are some in the church as, as the apostles begin to die, as it's becoming clear that that initial surge that came with the resurrection and the day of Pentecost and this kind of excitement for preparing all of creation for the coming of the new creation that was really great at first, and we were out of water and toilet paper in the store, but eventually we got back into the normal groove of things, and we wondered, like, is Rome really going to be overturned, or is this the way it's going to be? And some even began to mock in the, those in the early church and say, why, why are you doing this? For clearly nothing has really changed principalities and powers have always functioned this way. And so why would you live, why would you live in this way when we know 
maybe he will never come. And so I need to do just a little bit of theological work with you about the day of the Lord uh, this morning. And, and so hang with me just a bit. The whole idea of the day of the Lord actually is rooted, and this will shock you, uh, back in the Exodus story. So you know, well, if you've been with us, the Exodus story, God's people are in captivity. Pharaoh is the embodiment of empire, of the way, of the, way the principalities and, function, and powers function. They function in this way. Clearly, wealth is a sign of value. And clearly, might is the sign of security. And because Pharaoh has so much wealth and so much might, clearly then somehow the, the gods and the structures favor Pharaoh. And clearly in that kind of world where wealth equals value and where might equals security, then those who do not have wealth or do not have might, they clearly are not blessed by the gods. In fact, some ways we might think of them as clearly lesser than those of us who have that wealth and that security. And maybe they are the curse, that maybe um, they are meant to be where they are. In fact, we can misuse them because clearly the gods have misused them. And you know the story, Yahweh hears their cries and says, no, that is not how this functions. And so warns Pharaoh ten, with 10 different signs, no, you are not in charge. This is not the way, this is not the story of the world. Wealth is not a sign of your value to God or to anyone else. And might is not a sign of security. And here's your warning, Pharaoh. Warning, 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 warning. And he fails to heed those warnings and therefore chases God's people as he delivers them into the waters. And if you remember, and this is the day of the Lord in Exodus 14 and 15. The day comes finally when God has had enough of the way Pharaoh deals with the world. And so the the Israelites go into the water and come out of the water, and Pharaoh dares to go into the water himself with all of his chariots and horses. Now think of this in light of both the creation story and the, the Noah story. When you think of water, you have to think of tohu bohu, right? Like of the chaos. The God who is created out of chaos and the God who, who brought destruction through the water. Now Pharaoh runs in, and it is the waters that become the source of the day of the Lord's judgment. And the day of the Lord comes for Pharaoh and his armies. But here's the cool thing. The day of the Lord comes in a way that destroys those oppressive forces, but now delivers Israel into freedom. So the day of the Lord is bad news, if you will, for Pharaoh, but it's great news in fact, chapter 15 is a big song where they just sing about, this was a great day for us. High five. The day of the Lord brought redemption. And now, like Noah, who had 40 days of purification, we will now have 40 years in the wilderness to learn this new way. And we will embody laws and Torah in a way that remind us that wealth is not a sign of God's value. In fact, we will live now by daily bread. And our trust will not be in chariots and horses, but in God to bring deliverance when we need it. We will be a people who embody a different kind of way of life in the world. For that is the true story. So the day of the Lord came for Pharaoh in the form of water and opened up the possibility for Israel to learn a life of righteousness and peace in the wilderness. Did you get that? I've only said it 300 times in five years. But the day of the Lord then comes again later for Babylon. 
For in many ways, God's people wind up in a very similar situation, in exile, in captivity, in Babylon. And Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar kind of brags that unlike Egypt or these other empires, Babylon is now the eternal one. They have figured this out. They know that their wealth is a sign of their value in God's eyes and the Their power is a sign of their security. Certainly, whatever God's powers exist are on the side of Nebuchadnezzar, and that's where we get texts like Daniel chapter 7 that say, no, listen, all of those those forces that believe those kinds of things ultimately come to destruction, but the Son of Man will rise up and be over all of them. The day of the Lord will come for you, Nebuchadnezzar, and it came in the form of Cyrus the Persian. So the day of the Lord came also for Babylon and its false narrative of being an eternal empire. But if you're still with me, here's the prophetic twist in the Old Testament. And it happens, here's a couple of places. If if I still have your interest, you might want to write these two texts down. The prophetic twist is Amos 5, verses 18 through 20, and the prophet Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. The prophetic twist is this, Amos chapter 5, 18 through 20, and Joel 2, 28 through 32. These two prophets wonder, so here's what happens. Israel is always excited for the day of the Lord, because when the day of the Lord comes, it means that Pharaoh gets washed away and we get delivered. It means Babylon gets brought low and we get delivered. So the day of the Lord, we should always be excited about this. But here's what the prophets wonder. Should you be excited about the day of the Lord coming? Grab these two pieces. The prophets flip the story this way. The first is this. When the ultimate day of the Lord comes, it will no longer be water, but it will be now fire. That the water that sort of washed away all of the brokenness and evil in both the Noah story and the Pharaoh story, the prophets begin to imagine something different now. It will be a force like fire that comes and burns away everything that is impure and leaves only the pure. And so when that day of the Lord comes now by fire, not by water, and the prophets hear all of God's people kind of getting excited about that day of the Lord coming, they say this, why are you excited about that? Because... For Amos and Joel, they wonder if the day of the Lord is something God's people should desire. For how will the day of the Lord not just expose Egypt and Babylon, but how will it expose or judge God's people? So the twist in the Old Testament is this. The day of the Lord, which has been so excited because it burns away all those oppressive forces, also raises this question. Are, have we actually learned that? And although we may use Yahweh's name and do Yahweh's practices, our lives are actually more reflections of the story that looks like wealth equaling worth and security equaling power. And if you have those two things, obviously God is on your side. It may be Yahweh's name, but it's the same idolatrous story And when the day of the Lord comes, as Jesus would say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, uses my name, will walk into the new creation, into the kingdom of God, 
because although you've been using my name, you've been living the other story. Did you get that? And so Jesus enters the world as the Torah or the law, this way that teaches us how to live in ways that that counteract that narrative that says wealth equals worth and security equals power. He enters the world as the Torah filled full and teaches and empowers his disciples then to live in the ways of the new creation. To bring restoration and healing where there has been brokenness and division. But the day of the Lord, and this is back to Peter. So what Peter is saying is that the day of the Lord will be a day of revealing and purifying. It will be a day um, when all of the things that are not new creation or not kingdom of God, all of those things will be burnt away in the imagination of the prophets. But what remains is all that has been lived into and formed by and connected to the reality of God. And sin will be no more, and death will be no more, and oppression will be, all those things will be gone. And I love this line from Peter, and righteousness will be at home. (laughs) Righteousness will be at home. One last kind of Old Testament reference. In Isaiah, the 34th chapter, the fourth verse, the prophet Isaiah imagines a time when, when what gets translated as the elements, which in Peter, um, both in verse 10 and verse 12, the word elements is used. It's a, a Greek word. I don't want to nerd out this morning, but it's a, the word is stoicheia. It's a word scholars wrestle to translate, but more often than not, scholars say translate it as heavens, as stars, as the, the heavenly bodies. Again, not to geek out on you here, but in the ancient world, here's the way it was viewed. Pharaoh or Nebuchadnezzar or Caesar, or whoever had that power and knew that, that wealth equals value and that power equals security, felt that was justified because the heavenly beings like the sun and the moon and the stars held that held that power for them. And therefore they, like those exalted entities in the sky, they were exalted among common people. And so that those held their position of power, if you will. That was the the guarantee that it was okay for them to rise to power because those entities had risen to power and they were now reflections of those entities. You with me? And so what is God gonna do in Isaiah's imagination? Well, he'll destroy those things. And show that, no, it's not the stars and the sun and the moon that prop up who you are. There's really only one God who is the creator of all those things. And that God hears the cries of oppressed. And that God is calling into question your whole way of existence. And so Isaiah 34.4 has this idea. And it's, we sing it every time we sing it as well with my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my face shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll, right? It's taken from Isaiah 34. It's this idea as though we will roll them up like, like we roll up the drapes. 
and all will be exposed. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. It is even so, it is well with my soul. Why is it well with my soul when everything around me is getting rolled up? Because that has not been the place of my connection and identity. And so Peter says, the day of the Lord will bring about a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness is at home. But the scoffers scoff because it's taking so long. And if it's taking so long, and if God is so patient and allows a new Babylon to come along to learn that false story and to embody it for a time and to live a false life with all of its consequences, all of its consequences on how we treat others and treat even our neighbor and how we live out our lives connected to our bodies. Like that story is so destructive to every aspect of life, but it seems like God allows that to keep happening. So maybe this whole story of redemption and peace and blessing, maybe that's just a false story and you guys need to get over it. In other words, those who are scoffing at Peter and at this community, I often say the challenge for us as a community of faith is every time we leave this sanctuary or we log off and we hear a message and we say, oh, that's so good. The problem is as soon as we shut that down or walk out the door, it's as though there's something written on the imagination of our life that says that was great, but now as I go back to the real world. And the scoffers are saying, stop it, because in the real world, wealth equals value and security equals power. And all of the implications from that. But Peter flips it on its head and says, no, here's the deal. The delay is not an opportunity for this story to get repeated. In fact, what will happen is like small earthquakes happening. Every once in a while, God will bring those down as a reminder that that is a false story. And I want to say to you, brothers and sisters, every People, every culture, every empire that has felt them, their life live into that story that value equals wealth and security equals power inevitably fades away. It becomes self-destructive. And in those moments, we are reminded, oh yes, there is a big overturning coming. But it's not something we dread, Peter says. It's something we look at as Patience. God does not want that to keep happening. But God, like those civil engineers that every time a quake happens, goes out into the world and says, this is an opportunity, brothers and sisters, for us to reinforce our homes. This is a chance for us to secure our buildings. This is a chance for us to work at making peace in the world. This is our chance to tell those who have been on the underside of a narrative that says, Wealth equals value to say, no, as we said last week, you are the children of God. And you are not forgotten, and you are loved, and you are included, and here is daily bread. And we're not in a zero-sum game of competition, but this, this is a world filled with the goodness of God that should include you, and now because of God's life through us, now includes you too. And this is not intended to be a world where we live constantly in animosity and fear, believing that security equals strength. But a world 
where ultimately lion and lamb will live down together, lie down together. And so we, we work at securing the new creation by making peace now with those who think they're our enemy, but they don't know yet that they are our brother and sister. And so we work at that, like civil engineers, securing the house of God, securing the new creation, so that when the fire of the Lord's day comes, we do not fear it. But we are both patient in waiting, but I also love verse 12. We are waiting for and hastening. <laughs> we are waiting for it, but we are participating in a way that is moving toward it. When I was in seminary, um, I got to TA several ethics classes, and uh, a gentleman by the name of Lou Smeads, a great teacher. Uh, Lou Smeads would always have his classes read a, a novel as part of it. It, it. Well, it's not a novel. It's a, it is a book that recounts an actual event. A book written by Philip Halley, a book called Lest Innocent Blood Be Shed. It's an amazing book, powerful book that tells the story of a town in the south of France, up in the mountains, the town of Le Chambon, with a population of about 24,000 mostly Protestant Christians, who during the Holocaust took in at least 5,000 Jews, mostly children and young people, and found ways to hide them and, and make their life and protect their life, but not just protect, but sustain and move their life forward during those years. Primarily led by a pastor and his wife, um, Pastor Andre Trachme and his wife Magda. And, and in countless ways, the, the town risked their lives. And, and the amazing part about the book is that 24,000 people in a time where they were very fearful and where somebody could have easily said, this is creating danger for us all, and gone to the authorities and said, hey, this is what's happening, and benefited from being, if you will, the one who participates with the principalities and powers. What is amazing about the book is these 24,000 strangers in many ways were convinced, first of all, that the Reich and all that it was about was temporary. And they were convinced that God would not allow it to have the last word. And they were convinced that they were called to do this thing. And so the amazing part about the book is how 24,000 people conspired together and kept it a secret. And saved these folks. And so the book kind of wrestles with, how did you do that? How did you get 24,000 strangers to commit new creation sabotage? That's my language. Pastor Chuck may pointed to what he thought was their secret. He said, before any of this happened, we were a community that looked, for hard, looked hard for ways to make little moves against destructiveness. Let me say that again. We were a community that looked hard for ways to make little moves against destructiveness. This morning, what I want us to hear on this day where we celebrate 
the peace of Christ that has come and is coming is that the delay of the day of the Lord does not need to be a test of faith or a time when God's people give in to the real world. Peter wants us to recognize the delay of God is an extension of grace. And it means, if I can borrow Pastor Trachme's language today, it means we have been given more time to make little moves against destructiveness. <laughs> yeah. So in Advent, we don't wait in frustration, but we wait in gratitude. Because like civil engineers in Southern California, we have been called to be subversive agents of the new creation. Knowing that a big upheaval is coming, <laughs> the big one is on its way. And we want to hear the voice of the prophets that say, should you really be looking forward to that? Because how much of what you do uses God's name but actually lives like the principalities and powers? But those, um, those who've learned how to make little moves against the destructiveness of sin, the destructiveness of oppression and the destructiveness of a story that says wealth equals worth and security is power. Those who make little moves against that destructiveness. When the day of the Lord comes, all that is broken will be removed and there will be a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness is at home and where we are at home. And where folks in our world today who believe they have no home are at home. This morning, as we gather around the table, in so many ways, gathering around this table is, an, is a small act against destructiveness. For it says that ultimately we are not divided, but the Lord has brought us together. And as we, as we gather around this table this morning, I also want it to be a time of prayer and blessing. This is a, such an unusual season um, and continues to be and probably will continue to be for some weeks to come. But I would love, sometimes, as I said last week, moments of disruption also become moments for new imagination. And I don't know, um, I know that none of us can bring the new creation in its fullness, for only Christ and Christ's return can do that. But I wonder what small acts of conspiracy, little acts that move against the destruction might be in store for us in the days to come around our own family tables where some healing needs to take place. We're in our neighborhoods or our places of business 
in this community that God has placed us in. Perhaps as we gather around his table to reimagine ourselves as family, he can give us an imagination for how to go from this place and to live with little acts against destructiveness in expectation of the coming of a new creation. Almighty God, help us this morning. Um, we come because we need your peace. Uh, we need it in our lives. We need it in our homes. We need it in our communities. We need it, we need it deep within ourselves. We need it in the world. What I love most uh, about the story of La Chambon is they, they really didn't set out with the goal of saving this multitude of people. But they set out to do small acts of resistance against the world's brokenness. And my sense is that what Peter is inviting us to do and what your spirit invites us to do today is to not get frustrated with your delay and especially not get frustrated in such a way that we begin to just be a reflection of what we quote unquote call the real world among us. But that we find and we open our hearts and our imaginations to you to allow us to discover little moves against the destruction, pockets of peace, foretastes of the coming kingdom, civil engineers of a new creation where the newness of your life is being planted and grown and birthed in ways that will live into the fullness of your day that is coming. For we in this Advent season confess your day is coming and we thank you for your patience. But may our lives be lived in such a way that the day of the Lord is not something we fear, but a day that we wait for patiently, but we, we move towards with haste. So help us. May this table that we gather around today that feels so distant because of the season that we're in, may the distance be bridged by your spirit. And even when we're connected through a computer screen, may we sense that we are participants in your revolution of grace. So make us what we eat today. Um, make us the body of Christ. Bless these elements. Make them uh, a means of grace to us today. Would you open them with me? And if you would just hold them in your hand, let me pray a brief prayer of blessing. God, we hold in our hands common things, bread and cup, a reminder of a grace that is so uncommon, a grace that makes all things new. And so as we partake of it today, make we common folk, may you make us something so uncommon, make us the body of Christ. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, he lifted it, he gave thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Let us take and eat in remembrance of him today.
When supper was over, he took the cup, he blessed it. So this is my blood, which is poured out for you to preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Let us take and drink in remembrance of the grace that is making all things new. And we are thankful today. And God's people said, amen, amen.